So, how's everybody feeling about the economy? Yeah, it's not looking too great. On this episode, that's what we're going to talk about. The economy. Now, don't laugh. Look, I told everybody on the first episode I ever did, I wasn't the smartest guy out there. This episode is a prime example on why I strive to have guests on the podcast that are way smarter than I am. I mean, look, if you were to ask me what was happening to the economy before I had this conversation, I would have given you a totally profound answer like, green up arrows are good and red down arrows are bad. Now, fortunately, my guest is way smarter than I am. I sit down and have a conversation with Kelsey Williams. Kelsey has worked in finance in one form or another for well over 40 years. He is the author of two books. The first one is Inflation, What It Is, What It Isn't, and Who's Responsible For It. And his second book is All Hail the Fed. He has also written countless uh, articles, uh, both for his website and other publications. All these resources can be found in the show notes. Now, during our conversation, Kelsey breaks down exactly what is happening right now to the economy in a way that even a guy like me can understand. We talk about some possible scenarios over the next couple months, and uh, we even touch on a few things that you can do to help weather the economic storm. That's next on this edition of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. Well, Kelsey, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here. Um, I'm guessing that this is probably, uh, (laughs) in some of the times we're living in now, uh, economically, I'm guessing that you're probably finding this somewhat kind of not only disturbing, but fascinating at the same time, right? Well, it is, um, and and I'm not necessarily surprised for it, but I continue to be surprised by certain things that happen, which points up how difficult it is to anticipate and predict regarding these things. Right. So how long have you been, because you've been a financial planner, correct? Right. And how long have you done that for? Well, I was a full service financial planner for 14 years when I retired in 2005. Um, But my, with respect to finance, investments, and anything like any kind of financial services, my career is about 50 years old. Um, I was involved in uh, the gold and silver in the 70s. Um, I did accounting for five years before that in the early 70s, 70 to 75. Big high uh, ticket limited partnerships in the uh, 80s and uh, worked in a bank and uh, actually worked with one of the wirehouses for a while. 
uh, and then you know eventually the financial planning. So I figure uh, when I look back and counted it all up, yeah, about fifty years. Holy cow! So what what drew you to the field, right? I mean, was it just the numbers side of it, the math? I mean, what what was it that really drew you to it? Uh, I was I was interested in it. From the time I was in college, I, I could see that there was potential, I thought, and it was a subject uh, that, you know, captivated me. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in going out and being an accountant, although I did that for about five years. I was more interested in the gold and silver and the economy because I was reading those books back in the early 70s. Um, and... Uh, a lot of people won't recognize the name, but uh, uh, some will. And uh, Harry Brown, who uh, was one of the first people to talk about the economy uh, for this generation, and for my generation. And uh, I read his books and uh, I got started on things. I was, you know, involved uh, buying bags of silver coins and, you know, uh, doing that. And, investments in gold and silver, and then got into it professionally as well, and did that until about 1980. Wow. Holy cow. So let, let me ask you this, because it sounds like you were around for the Carter administration, correct? Yes. yes. How does what we're going through now, how does it feel in comparison to what, what you remember during, during Carter's administration with stagflation and those sorts of things? Um. I've done a little bit of research on this. I think, I think overall, yeah, a lot. There are some similarities, but I have a tendency to look at it by looking at the broad picture. You know, it's one of the things you talk about. Can't see the forest for the trees. That some people are focusing on right now. But when I put right now in the perspective of looking back at that period of time, there are things that are similar, but there are things that are different and. I don't think we can infer that just because we see certain things happening today that it's the same thing that was going on because the effects of inflation, which we're gonna talk about, are unpredictable. And uh, so, you know, the effects of inflation, certainly that's there, but there's more volatility because inflation, uh, which is created by the Federal Reserve, is cumulative and ongoing. It doesn't right. stop. And that creates an element of volatility as well as the unpredictability. Okay. So I think this is, you brought up inflation. So we're seeing this inflation. I mean, I hear about it every time my poor wife goes to the grocery store, right? She comes back and she looks at me and she's like, you might want to think about the gym more and eating less just because the prices continue to go up and up and up. Is, is food really where most people will see inflation or are we seeing it in other sectors? That's a good question. And, and uh, you know, food and energy is where most people are going to notice something the quickest on, on, the broad, on a broad basis because that's day to day. But a lot of what we're seeing in terms of food and energy prices has nothing to do with inflation. And that is confusing people. 
And I don't think that that confusion is unintentional. Um, and again, that gets into other spinoffs and stories about inflation and how it happens, but which I know we're going to get to. But uh, the biggest portion of gas prices, for example, that we're ex seeing today is not due to inflation. It's due to the fact that Russia isn't being allowed to ship its oil out and sell it because of you know the boycotts and things. Um, and, and part of what we're seeing with respect to food and energy too is supply chain issues. Supply chain issues have nothing to do with inflation. Those are economic issues and they're the result of the forced shutdown of the economy a couple of years ago. And, you know, I like to use uh, the analogy, you shut the water off to your house. You don't turn it on for a while and then you turn it on. You don't just suddenly have the same smooth flow coming out of the taps. It takes a while for that to happen. Plus, sometimes there are kinks in lines and leaks and other things that happen. Um, but what, what happened is we start, you know, we shut everything down and then you one day say, okay, go back to work and do this. Well, that's great, but it doesn't just happen because somebody said you can do that. And that's caused a big problem, plus independent decisions by laborers, workers who say, hey, look, I kind of like getting my checks and not having to do anything. And you can't control that. See, that's, those are in it. Right or wrong, people are making those kinds of decisions. Well, you throw all that in the hopper. That has nothing to do with inflation. So we uh, that, those we, are economic issues. Gotcha. So so we could see kind of a compounding of, of right the, because there is a portion of the higher prices overall that's a result of inflation, but that's been ongoing, and then it was amplified with um, what happened in reaction to the shutdown, and not the spending per se, but the money that was created to facilitate that spending. And then, and then you see the effects of that inflation added to all of the supply chain issues. So if you take the inflation out of it completely, say the inflation effects are not a factor and you take that percentage out, we'd still be paying $4 a gallon or more for gasoline just because of the supply chain issues. I got you. I got you. So real quick, let's let's do this. Let's start at a very rudimentary level because honestly, that's where I need to start. How would you define inflation? What is inflation? All right, I'll give you the short answer first, and then I'll expand on that a little bit because there's some uh, a flow to it that is important in understanding it. The simple straight answer is that inflation is the debasement of money by government. Now, most people will hear that and it'll be it's like, well, okay, but what does that mean? You know, the debasement of money by government, government also means central banks. Okay. As far as I'm concerned. So, you know, we could say that the debasement of money by governments of central and central banks. Government debases the money by expanding the supply of money and credit. They do it intentionally and they do it continually. 
So that, that's what inflation is. And I think when we talked the other night, I gave you my example, if we wanted to really understand the difference between that and what everybody calls inflation, just think about pumping up a basketball or a blowing up a balloon. You inflate the object to a point where then the uh, integrity of the uh, skin or the balloon is compromised and, and you have a problem. But that's not the inflation. The inflation is the act of putting the air into it. So the inflation is the debasement of the money. That's what inflation is. And the responsible party is the central bank, the Federal Reserve. Okay, so real quick, I, I want to go over this here. So just to make sure I've got my mind wrapped around this. So inflation would be a symptom, so to speak, of um, the debasement of the currency correct? It, it's actually an intentional action. The reason governments and central banks inflate the currency, and all governments do it, is because it's profitable for them. Inflation started hundreds of years ago when uh, monarchs used, they would collect their taxes, which at that time used coins, uh, and they would clip the coins. They'd punch, do a little punch clip on the coins and then they'd melt them down and create new coins with them. So you had coins circulating that were, some had punch clips and some didn't, but they'd tell them, hey, they're the same value, so you know, just use them. Well, that was the origination of inflation. And then you got to substitutes for real money, paper, currencies, IOUs, that sort of thing. And then it was a matter of just printing it. Now we're at a digital phase, but the inflation is the act of debasing the money supply by Me? expanding it, expanding okay. that supply of money and credit. That's inflation. Everything now, else are the effects of inflation. Okay. Now, now, and, and when you say credit as well, how does, how does a, a government or a central bank free up credit when and, and is this the kind of credit that we're talking about where they 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 will inject money into the system so you know businesses and that sort of thing can go get loans in, in my understanding yeah there's there's a couple things that are happening um the first one is to just look at the uh, the simple ongoing operations of the u.s government when they need money they issue treasury securities bonds, notes, and bills. That's how they get their money. They, they borrow it. But what happens is the Federal Reserve makes auction, there's auctions available and whatever money is received is then they're added to that by the Federal Reserve to make up any difference, any shortfalls. So that the government is guaranteed of getting everything it wants. If it needs the billion dollars, they issue the treasury securities, the government, uh, the treasury is credited in its account with a billion dollars by the Federal Reserve. Now, what happens, and this is where the, the breakdown, people may have bought treasury securities at auction, that takes money out of circulation because it's going to the Fed or to the government. But the treasury, the US government, turns right around 
and spends that money putting it back into circulation along with the treasury securities that it issued. So let's say I had a million dollars of cash and I buy a million dollars worth of treasury bonds. The million dollars of treasury bonds I have are considered gilt edge collateral. I can do anything I want with those in terms of buying power, purchasing, whatever I need, collateral, because they're considered the best there is. I didn't hurt myself financially by buying treasury securities and giving up the cash because they're like cash. So I have those, the government has the cash, but the government spends the cash and puts it back out there. So when I say expansion of the supply of money and credit, we now have a million dollars of cash back out in circulation, as well as the treasury securities that were issued. Treasury securities, issued the way they are is considered monetizing the debt. That's what the government and the Fed are doing in the course of these auctions. So the government never worries about it because when they have to retire those securities, they just issue more to pay them off. They're not really, and the Fed uh, has a, a guarantees that the government will always have its money, which is something we can talk about when we talk about the Fed, but the government will never run out of money. Uh, not that that's good or right, they just won't under the, the system the way it works right now. Okay, so, and, and, and forgive me, because I know I must sound, I, I must just sound silly asking some of these questions. Not at all. So they got the money, then they issue it in bonds, somebody buys it, and then the central bank turns right around and prints the replacement money for the money that was just kind of quote uh, transferred. Isn't that, am I understanding that portion correctly? That's not exactly the way it works. Let me, let me give you a couple of, ex uh, a better example. Okay. Let's say first that there's an announcement, there's going to be uh, a certain amount of treasury securities up and on an auction basis, all of them are subscribed, okay? So the Fed doesn't necessarily, other than for bookkeeping purposes, the Fed's not involved, but the government's gonna get that money. That takes that money out of circulation. So it's a reduction in the money supply. If you look at the cash that went to the treasury. Okay. But since the, the treasury, government turns right around and spends that money, it goes back out in the economy and circulation again, in addition to the securities that were sold, the treasury bonds that were sold. So now in circulation in the economy are treasury bonds and cash. So I consider the credit, because that's the way the Fed increases the money supply, is mostly by credit. Now, if you remember back in 2008, that's, see that particular example is ordinary operations. Let's go to something extraordinary like the credit collapse in 2008. What the Fed did there is two things. One, they created credit by simply making it available at an attractive rate. Where did they get the money? they just simply said, it's here, all right? <laughs> so, 
here's the money, you can borrow it, and this is the rate. And they made it attractive for member banks to borrow that way. There were others that were given the uh, opportunities and they had to fund the government spending. See the government, um, Congress authorized, you know, over a trillion dollars of immediate help at that time, as far as the, uh, what was going on. Well, where does that come from? The Fed bought a lot of that and also purchased on the open market, which they're always doing in order to support bond prices, the Federal Reserve and its primary dealers were involved in purchasing bonds. What that did is keep the bond market from collapsing as well as keep interest rates down. Where did they get the money? Well, they have the authority to create money. The Fed is licensed to create money. See, we say, well, where did they get it? Well, that's how money happens. It didn't just come into existence unless you're using real money that's accepted like gold and silver have been historically. Otherwise, the Fed is simply making offsetting debit and credit entries in digital format, and that's creating the money and credit. So it's expanding it. So when air, and you can follow and watch and see how the money supply continues to grow because the Fed even puts it out there so people can see. That's inflation. The continual uh, increase in the supply of money and credit is inflation. Everything else are effects of inflation. Okay, so with this idea of filling the, the basketball up or whatever twofold, let's say to the point that the that the structure is compromised right how is it that they they maintain a balance there right because i don't know why it hasn't popped because i i see what you're saying with the expanding money supply right so at some point if that ball was to burst so to speak that would essentially make our dollar worthless correct right? Correct. Okay. So and, what are they doing to balance that out? Right. Cause I'm, I'm assuming at some point, what, what's the mechanism for bringing the cash back in, right. To take it Fed out is, of circulation. Yeah, The federal reserve is always involved in the secondary markets. They are always buying and selling securities. And they do that with the intention of moderating the effects which they're trying to figure out just like everyone else. You can't predict them, they're volatile. And when there's a problem, all they can do is react to it. And that continual reaction has its own effects. So they're in the markets buying and selling securities. And that's how they moderate it. They're trying to get a gauge on things, but they're always involved either withdrawing funds by uh, selling securities or they're buying bonds and supporting their prices, trying to keep interest rates down. Okay. So when we see that the, the, the central bank raised the interest rates, right? They've done, I think they've done two now. You probably know better than I, two or three. Is that an effort in raising those interest rates to draw that liquidity back out of the system? 
Yes. Okay. But what it does, it's like, um, you know, a good example is like spiking the punch. Once you've spiked it, what if you don't put as much in the next time or you don't, you know, that has an effect on it. People don't drink as much punch. Um, you, you always have cause and effect here. So the Fed doesn't really control interest rates. They try to force interest rates to a certain direction and they can do have control over the discount rate and the Fed funds rate. The discount rate is the rate that is charged to member banks to borrow overnight from each other. Okay, so, now, now if, if it's okay, I'd like to stop there for just a second because I read something, gosh, I wanna say a couple months ago about the discount window, just that thing where banks would basically go in, take out a loan, and just meet their expenditures overnight. Right. I'd heard that that discount window, the, the, the withdrawals at that discount window had grown exponentially. Is that true? Uh, it, yeah, it may have. I don't, I don't track it all continuously, but there you, do you, I'll tell you where we will see that clearly, what you're talking about. Is you remember a couple of years ago, all the questions and concerns about re repos and overnight agreements and the money market. There was a lot of concern there. Um, Fed, Fed funds and discount rate are, banks have the ability to lend money based on what's been deposited in their bank. And every night they have to balance that. They have to be within a certain ratio. In order to do that, they borrow from each other. That's, that's actually the Fed funds rate. And I think I may have reversed that when I said it, but that's the Fed funds rate. And the discount rate is what it costs member banks to borrow directly from the Fed. That's the extent of interest rate control by the Fed. Other interest rates are set in the marketplace by people buying and selling bonds, government bonds, treasury securities, corporate bonds, whatever. And also, as those interest rates change according to people's desire to hold certain bonds or not enough interest, I'll wait, whatever, then interest rates themselves rise or fall depending on that. When uh, the 2008 happened, it was a collapse in the credit markets. And that's when the Fed stepped in and started buying securities to hold on their books, which was an experiment because they had never done it to the degree they did. And they went well beyond the treasury market and they also bought corporates and junk bonds. So, um, and, and that's what supported the market. But, and, and, and they did it because there wasn't enough demand to buy those bonds. It was, it was a wholesale dumping of bonds. And that, of course, drove interest rates up dramatically until the Fed stepped in and started buying more. Doesn't sound like it was a good idea, necessarily. Well, it is if you're trying to keep things from collapsing. And that's really where most of the efforts of the Federal Reserve are aimed today. They are reacting to the effects of their own inflation, which has been happening for 100 years. And in the meantime, 
they're trying to massage all of this. So they're really more or less putting out fires, trying to keep things from completely collapsing. And, and so I think that's where you start to look at it and say, okay, we're seeing this more and more often. We're seeing the volatility increase. And at some point, they won't be able to control it. Okay. And that, that was where I was going next is at, at some point, there's just too much out there, right? There's, there's nothing you can do in that. And that's where you would see, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, either hyperinflation or, or even hyperdeflation, correct? Right. You've got a world economy that depends on cheap and easy credit. Without it, there is no economic activity. Everybody depends on credit. We, we see it with cars, we see it with houses, uh, corporations for expansion purposes. Economic activity is funded by cheap and easy credit. If it's there, and, and they've, been, they've really been sort of lured into that because we're, they're not dealing with things, um, you know, if we, if we really looked at it, it's like you can you overindulge in alcohol and drugs, you get used to it, and then something happens and goes wrong. Either your system can't stand it anymore, or you don't want to experience the effects of trying to get clean. So somewhere along the way, the piper has to be paid. And it's, can they keep it going long enough to pass kick the can down the road a little further, which they've been doing most of this century. So are we, is America the only country that has um, done this or are there other Western nations or na other nations period that have, have done the same thing we have? No, we, we have, we're an era called modern central banking. So other nations, they're, they're all doing pretty much the same thing. What makes the U.S. the focal point is that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. So there's a status and there's more dollars out there than anything else. So it's more critical. And everybody sort of feeds off the dollar. That's how people make decisions. They don't look at their own currency. How did that currency fare against the dollar? How is the dollar faring against other currencies? What's going on? And so as long as that's the case, then everybody's going to look at the dollar for their clues and indicators. Now, that's this is going to say this may may be too silly of a question, but at some point, this is all based on this idea that everyone agrees that the dollar is worth something. Right. And in, in that case, that in that scenario you just explained is that the rest of the world is basically just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure America's good for it, right? right? So has have we seen any sort of activity in which another country has called into question are, you know, is the dollar really, really worth the dollar, so to speak? Um, there's no question people have called uh, that particular point up many times recently over the, the past couple of decades and before. But um, 
what are you going to replace the dollar with? I mean, when people people talk about it and say, okay, um, let's agree the dollar. I mean, the dollar is worth one penny compared to a dollar a hundred years ago in purchasing power. So the Federal Reserve has lost night has caused a loss of 99% of the dollar's value. Now we can say, all right, that's fine. The problem is that nothing else out there has the status and uh, ability to be a substitute for the dollar. And, and until there's something that could do that or that people are willing to accept on a worldwide basis, we're just probably going to continue with a dollar that continues to deteriorate as long as other countries. I think there's less reason to trust currencies like the Chinese yuan, which has been talked about, the Russian ruble, every, those, and other countries, as much as they may have any degree of justification for criticizing the dollar, their own currencies don't come close to being a potential substitute. So is there ever a possibility of, of, of pegging back to a commodity like oil or something like that? Um, there's always a possibility. The problem is, uh, and, and I, I would say, you know, you, you can peg it to oil, but oil is a commodity. It can't really be used as money because who's going to, be able to do something with a barrel of oil. You know, that's one of the reasons oil is not really money. And pegging something to anything at all, whether it's gold or money, saying it's backed by these things isn't the issue. The issue is convertibility. So I can tell you that, uh, okay, we have so many dollars in circulation. And this is what happened when the dollar was fixed to gold at a certain rate. There is only supposed to be X amount of dollars relative to that to come up with that ratio. So as the US government continued to make more dollars and credit available over the decades, it got to the point where if people wanted to actually have the gold they were entitled to, which it says on there, there wasn't enough gold to satisfy the demands because they'd issued too many dollars. And that's the problem uh, when you talk about backing a currency. You can back it to anything you want, but if it's not convertible to that other item, it does me no good at all. I'm just trusting you to do what you said. So it all comes down to what people are willing to believe and accept. Okay. All right. And that's, that's kind of where I was going with that. Now let's, let's talk about when, when did we start this idea of just expanding the money supply for, because for, and again, correct me if I'm wrong for about the first hundred years of our, our, you know, national existence, it was pegged to gold, correct? So the idea being you could take a dollar into the bank and get a dollar's worth of gold, right? That is correct. Whose idea was it to, to begin to inflate the money supply? Where does that come from? Um, there was infl examples of inflation that had occurred 
over that first century, one of the, the without getting into a lot of detail, one of the, the worst cases was uh, during the Civil War. And even the um, South tried to claim that their currency had a value and talked about gold. The problem is there were too many of them out there and everybody knew they were worthless. So, but the inflation has always been an issue. And that's why we talked about the clipping of coins. All governments inflate and destroy their currencies. That is the way it works. Um, and we had an example with France in the late um, 18th century where they issued assinats, which are simply paper assinats, supposedly backed by real estate that was publicly owned. And they kept issuing too much and finally uh, you know, collapsed, uh, had a, a hyperinflation and brought about a revolution. You had an example with the hyperinflation in Germany or uh, the Weimar Republic trying to recover from World War I and thought they would print their way out of it. And that led to the hyperinflation that we hear talked about in Germany in the 20s. Um, so inflation's been with us all along. As far as the US is concerned, I would say the concentrated effort to include inflation as policy happened with the origin of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Okay, so I wanna stick with, with, with this part here for just a few more minutes to make sure that, that I'm sure. clear on it. So this is something that had been around for a while, right? It seems like every nation, it, it almost seems like a trap that nations just can't avoid getting into. Is that, would, is that a, Fair assessment. It's true. I mean, think of your own individual situation and say to yourself, man, if I could just print some money <laughs> or come up with something somewhere that people would take, well, the government is no different. I mean, they have their objectives and they have their desires and they know what they, or a king. You know, we were originally were talking about kings, ruling monarchs and uh, with the clipping of coins. So whatever the form of government is, they have their intentions, their desires, their motivations, and their spending, and they have to fund that. And the only way they can fund it, uh, actually not the only way, but the way they usually resort to funding it is because their appetites for spending are greater than the money that's available is to create inflation. So you clip the coins, there's more money out in circulation, you draw it back in in taxes and continually to recycle it, but it's a greater amount. And so then, then you go to the paper, you do the same thing. There's a conscious effort. The intention, at least as far as um, the Federal Reserve is concerned, is that by doing this, they know it's part of the system and what it does is by, by being able to continually expand the money supply, they have the license to create the money. This allows them to lend it, all the member banks lend the money and collect interest. If you had a license to create the money that everybody used, and so 
you know, you, you would be making money. And that's what, that's what the banks and, and the Federal Reserve is like a banker's bank. It provides a network and an environment that allows the member banks to create money, lend money, and collect the interest. That's the purpose and origin of the, of the central bank. Okay. So real quick, I, I know that there's been some talk about the numbers being doctored when it comes to the inflation we currently have now. Do you know anything about that? At, at what are, you know, what, what's the inflation rate right now compared to what it was in the 70s? Is it higher? Is it lower? It's lower. Okay. And, and, it, and it's lower on a nominal basis, but it's also lower on an inflation adjusted basis. In other words, if we were looking at 10% inflation today versus 10% inflation 40 years ago, it's not that bad. <laughs> we're not even halfway to that. We're getting up five, six, seven, you know, maybe an 8% annual rate. But um, I don't think we're seeing anything comparable to what was taking place 40 years ago. Okay. Um, I think the reason it's got people's attention has more to do with the fact that what they are used to was not a problem. And suddenly, uh oh, well, wait a second, you know, what happened to the 1.36% annual inflation rate, they call it, in uh, 2019 or 2020? Well, Sure, when you suddenly see the rate jump on an annual basis to six or seven or eight percent after a one percent or a, a period of two or three decades of lower than usual rates of inflation, that's going to cause a problem. People are used to something, they remember what it was like recently, and now they're paying more, and that gets their attention. It, are we in as bad a shape? Well, we're probably in worse shape if we look at the cumulative effects of everything and where we are. But in terms of in the effects of inflation themselves, I don't think they're as bad and not nearly as bad as they were in the 80s. And they're also more an indication, another indicator that things are slowing down because economic activity um, I wrote an article about this uh, a year or two ago. If you go back and look on an inflation adjusted basis, everything peaked in 1980. Ever since then, it's downhill. So all of the efforts to inflate and create this additional money and credit and keep the price levels up is not sustaining or encouraging economic activity the way it's supposed to. So it's like a drug addict. Your first time you have the first fix, it's great. You have your withdrawal, you decide, I, that felt really good, I wanna do it again. You go out and you do it again. The next time you don't get the same impact. You say, well, I, I need a little more. So you okay. do a little more. So you lose, so inflation works that way. Plus, you really don't know how you're going to respond. And that's the unknown part. And it gets a little more volatile. You increase the dosage. You increase the frequency. You try to avoid the downers. 
and the withdrawal possibilities. So in terms of danger zones, we're right there. In terms of what's happening with inflation, it's not the problem that people are saying it is because it really isn't as bad. Okay. All right. That, that, that kind of answers that question there. And I do want to return to that at some point when we, when we get down the road here in this discussion a little more. But let's, let's talk about the Fed for a second. When was the Fed created? I think you said 1913? 1913. And what was the impetus for that? Was that something that the government looked at, uh, you know, existing bankers and said, hey, we want you guys to form a central bank? No, not exactly. The, um, the Federal Reserve, a central bank, is actually another name for a national bank. And the United States had experimented with national banks before, and most people were convinced they didn't want one. So, uh, and you had a period of time after Andrew Jackson up until the Federal Reserve where there was no national bank. Now, this is where it gets a little sticky because some people don't wanna believe it. Some people do believe it. Some would say, well, it's probably some credibility to the theory and there is some historical evidence. On the other hand, does it make any difference? And that involves conspiracy. Um, there is no, I don't think there's any question that there were a group of very um, secretive meeting, a group of individuals who kept some meetings very secret and that there were uh, concerted efforts to bring about the Federal Reserve. And it was called the Federal Reserve in order to avoid the idea that it was a national bank. And also it wasn't referred to as a Federal Reserve Bank. It was referred to as the Federal Reserve because people didn't wanna hear bank on the end of it. So you had a population who was concerned about it but you also had legislators, congressmen, who said, we don't want a national bank. So those who wanted this were private individuals, although some of them were politicians who had affiliations with bankers and others. And it's this group of individuals who put this program together but they had to convince the general public that it was in their best interest. And they also had to convince Congress to authorize it. So they had um, a two-pronged approach. As far as the public, they enlisted the best efforts of high profile businessmen and others. And they told the public that it was good for them because the Federal Reserve would focus on managing the stages of the economic cycle and avoiding as much as possible depressions, panics and crashes, and also hopefully extend the prosperity cycle to avoid those problems. So it got people to think that, okay, this is, this is in our best interest, this will work. All right, because we would like to have a smoother effect here than what was going on. 
They also had to convince Congress. And the way they did that is they needed to have some reason that somebody at some level of government could use their influence to convince those who would vote against this to vote for it. So the Federal Reserve, the people behind the Federal Reserve who wanted this thing to happen, made a promise that if the Federal Reserve were approved and, and uh, authorized their existence, that they would guarantee that the US government would never run out of money, that they would make sure that the money was there for the, for the treasury to operate. That's how they got, and then that element of government convinced the senators they needed to, to make the vote. And that th those are the two things that had to be overcome for the, for the authorization of the Federal Reserve. It sounds kind of shady, Kelsey. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> As you explain the whole thing there, I'm like, yeah, that's, that sounds kind of shady, right? And then as you were saying, it, its whole purpose was to prevent really big highs and really big crashes, which so far they haven't been able, I, I don't know, have well, they been able, have they been able to do yeah. that? Did we see more, more crashes before the Fed versus after? I mean, when I, I wrote about this and there, there's a, I, you and I have both read the book, um, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is about the origin of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and uh, I, I believe there is a great deal of credibility to that because the historical facts and the names are there and the evidence is there. And, uh, but you can just wipe that out and say, okay, let's look at it differently. And let's look at it and say, what was the motivation of those who wanted the Fed? We, if it wasn't conspiracy, what, what, what did they want? Why was it important to have an, another national bank or something close to that? Why did these gentlemen in particular feel like this is important? Because they were all identified with the bankers, international bankers. And, um, and I said, okay, that's the conspiracy side of it, okay? Let's put that aside for a minute. And so what's another reason that it might, shouldn't be there? Well, one is constitutionality. Right. And the best, uh, I think the, the, the most outspoken and, and clearest in his uh, uh, call for the Fed to be abolished is former uh, Congressman Rand. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, now, uh, and, and he's, he's very clear about it. And I think there's merit to that. And you could say the same thing about the in, income tax, but nevertheless, it, they were both approved. The income tax is approved and, and they were accepted. Whether the constitution or not, they're there. So, and it's, it's interesting, but the federal income tax originated in 1913, same year as the central bank. Right. Um, Anyway, so let, so you can say, all right, so you have constitutionality, you have the conspiracy possibilities. What if we set both of those aside and just <laughs> said for the time being, well, now let's just look at it a different way. Does the Fed have a responsibility 
to the American citizens? Are they answerable to Congress or the US government? Well, they're sort of a quasi federal agency in a certain sense, and they do make an appearance before Congress on a regular basis, and they answer questions, but I'm not sure how answerable they are because I did some research on this and I just discovered this recently that the Fed has been chartered in perpetual or perpetuity. In other words, they're, they're, the charter for the Federal Reserve doesn't run out at some point. With other national banks, there was always a renewal call for. In this case, it was about, I think, nine or 10 years later, in the early 20s, maybe 1922, that a, a bill authorized the Fed charter without an end or limit. So I don't know where, where we'd get to the point of, you know, that's why I think most of the things fall on, you know, fall off the way. They, they can't really, nobody knows how to do it. How do we get rid of them? But the, the final thing here to consider when we're looking at it is, like you asked, have they done any good? <laughs> have they accomplished what they said they were gonna do in terms of managing the economic cycle, the stages, smoothing things out? Absolutely not. The Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. The Federal Reserve caused the credit collapse in 2008. All of the effects that we're seeing in terms of volatility and threats to the financial system and our economy are effects of inflation that was created by the Fed from the beginning, from its origin. So no, they, they certainly aren't justified. And yet we keep looking to the Fed to solve our problems. Hey, or trying to tell them this is what you should do or shouldn't do. You can't cut back now because of this. You're right, they're on the horns of a dilemma. If, if they, uh, if you keep spiking the punch bowl, sooner or later, you're still gonna have bad effects. And if you take away the spike, it's gonna cause a, an immediate collapse because everybody is used to it and they depend on it. So the Fed, uh, really doesn't have much choice other than to maneuver back and forth. And when things get bad enough, they'll react, but they usually tend to overreact. Right. And it's kind of like being in a car that's out of control. And every once in a while, you, you're, you're going too fast, so you slam on the brakes. Then you go really slow, and suddenly you realize you're not getting anywhere, so you speed up again. And as you speed up, you see a wall right ahead, and then you have to slam on the brakes again. And, and this is the way the Fed operates because they're in the dark just as much. They knew when they started out that some, at some point it was gonna be out of control. They just hoped they could continue to massage it. And I think we're you know, probably past the point. At some point, something will happen big enough and we'll just have to accept it and the Fed will too, but they'll pull out all their guns at that time. They'll do everything they can because they're not working in our behalf. They wanna save their system. Right. They have the license to print money, lend it, 
and collect interest. The banks do. So they don't want to lose that. So let me ask, let me let me rephrase some things this way. If if America is the is the addict, cheap money is the heroin, then our dealer is the Fed. Is that a is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. A supplier for sure. Okay. So they've been they've been doing this for a while now, right? Where they've been been you know lending the United States money, and, and let's call it what it is, right? They're lending the taxpayers money, right? And then we're expected to pay back that interest. So they they've been lending us money. Um, who is their boss? Is it is there somebody in the federal government? Is it Janet Yellen? Who is it that the Fed answers to? Is there anybody they answer to? This is where it can get a little dicey. Um, government is uh, all, all areas of, of importance in government. We probably have people that are affiliated and part of bankers and organizations that have um, motivation that's far beyond anything we would assume or understand. It's not one person or group necessarily. It might be several groups. It might, there might be an individual who has a connection with two or three different groups. Um, and then you have individuals who you wonder, maybe they probably aren't, but they lean towards the political philosophy that would allow that implementation to happen at some point. It revolves around power and control and money, those three things. But I think we can rule out the money specifically, but not the power and control. The money has to be there, but that's not the goal. And those who have that influence are probably at a point where, what am I going to do with all this money? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, now I say that, but I also, I'm not a fatalist here. I, I don't, you know, and this is hard for people, but again, do some research because the evidence is there. This stuff's been going on for quite some time. And it's not just here in the US, it's in Europe. And so you can see that there are those, and, some, and, and the term has been used, shadow government. I mean, if you look at it, the first, I think the first tip off for me came in the, in the 70s, when I realized that it really didn't make much difference whether we had a Republican in office or a Democrat, because the spending habits and the, the, the course of uh, government activity and intervention and interference, coupled with the loss of uh, personal freedom, it, it goes back quite some time. And so, you see that and you have to believe it's like, wait a second, is this the same guy that was saying what he was saying when he was running for office? Or even if he sounds like he is, 
is anything being accomplished. So I look at it that way and I've been convinced for well over 40 years that uh, it doesn't make a, a much difference at all who's in office anymore, that they're not in control. And if they are, if, if, they, if they rebuff those who are in control, then something happens to them. <laughs> right. uh, and you have, um, I, I don't see how some people can even read a newspaper anymore or look at headlines on their computer news feeds and think that, that we have a free and open press because you know, it's just not. I mean, that's, that's my personal opinion, but- um, I agree with you. Um, I think the evidence is there, but we still have a measure of freedom that allows us to be independent and take action for ourselves. So, uh, and, and I try to write that way. You see, I, I don't, I have hesitated to write too much about the conspiracy. One is I had trouble convincing myself that everything boils down to that. And I'm still not convinced it does. It's just that there's a measure of trust involved. Who am I talking to? Can I believe him? And uh, you know, where, where, where do my best interests lie? And uh, so I'm not, I, I'm not anti-government other than I don't think government is the answer the way we're headed, never has been. Uh, I, I, I mentioned his name before, Harry Brown, but I, he wrote over 40 years ago, you know, we need to start with a goal in mind. Cut income taxes by 50% and cut government intervention. Right. By a third to a half. In other words, uh, why, why is the government regulating all of these things and telling us that. Well, see that, all of that goes together. I think that's a part of the, the, the financial and economic. You can't ignore those things. You have to know about them. You can make, you make your choices and your decisions and then you look at what's going on and you say, all right, how am I gonna deal with this? If you discount the conspiracy theories, if you discount the shadow government issues, and you at least look and say, you know what? The track record of the Fed sucks. They haven't done much to make this worthwhile. So I'm gonna protect myself. And, you know, so, you know, you do some things to, to do that, but, but um, we're, uh, we're closer to the end of the road than somewhere along the way. Right. <laughs> Might be a good way to put it. Before we go, see some significant change. Yeah, no, before we go there, I want to ask this question. Before the Federal Reserve, who set the monetary policy, right? Who decided when it was time to print more money? Who did that? Hey, you had a government and a treasury in, in office. There was no central bank, national bank. The experiences with the national banks were, were not there then. They, they would come and they would go. So the treasury was responsible, but there was a direct link to gold and silver. 
We had a bimetallic system. So you could hand me, see gold was original money. That was right. money before paper currencies. So in order, and this is the logic is, if, if a government wants people to accept its paper currency, then it's gotta convince them it's in their best interest. And in order to overcome that obstacle though, they've gotta trust. And so in order to trust, they say, well, let's make the dollar, since we wanna have, it. what they call it is irrelevant. It's how does it function, you know? And they said, we'll make the dollar convertible to X amount of gold or silver. And, and civilizations have done this, you know, so, because people say, okay, I know I have five pieces of silver here. I know I have a fraction ounce of gold. If I can take that paper dollar and turn it in and get exactly that back in exchange, I'm good to go. The problem is too many of those paper substitutes were issued such that the convertibility became questionable. So the convertibility being the issue, as long as people knew that a dollar in gold, a dollar was as good as gold, you know, a paper dollar was a dollar in gold, and that that was maintained then it's not an issue, not a problem. Doesn't mean you're not gonna have stages of the economic cycle, and it doesn't mean they're bad for the economy generally. You have to have a cleansing of some kind once in a while. And they don't all happen because of the system. They happen because of people and individuals and other activities. So, um, so that's what you had. You have people, you know, what's money? what people will accept. The national bank changes everything, the central bank. Now everything's funneled through the Fed. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, let me, let me. I wanna make one thing clear though. Okay. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier, and I think it's important. Government spending does not create inflation. There's been a lot of talk about Biden's irresponsible spending plans, his administration and what happened in response to the forced shutdown and COVID and all this stuff. But the Federal Reserve creates the money. If the money isn't there, the, Fed, the government can't spend it. Right. Inflation doesn't happen. A corporation raising prices that doesn't cause uh, inflation. Labor demands don't cause inflation. Inflation is the cheapening of the money supply because of that expansion of money and credit by the Fed. That's what causes the debasement. And then that loss in purchasing power occurs. And then the prices go up to reflect the loss in purchasing power. It's not because it's not a spontaneous event. It's a planned action and it starts with the Federal Reserve, with the central bank. And that's the way it works. So you're saying it doesn't start with with like a, a wish list by a president saying, hey, I need this much money to do X, Y, and Z that's 
that's were planks in my platform that I have to get done. And then he looks at the Fed and says, print that money. Well, it may start there. He, okay. his, his spending is reckless. There, there's any, anything, it's Congress. Congress is like drunken sailors. If there's a problem, we're gonna spend some money. And that's what they do. They throw money at it and create more regulations. But they can't spend money that they don't have unless it's made available. So the only way it's going to be made available is if they uh, create treasury securities and they're loaned borrow borrow the money or get it from the Fed. Whatever combination can get it, they're guaranteed to have it, and they will. They're not going to run out. They just continue to print more treasuries to redeem everything. So if they're unable to do that. It doesn't matter how much they want to spend. You know, individuals can go out and say, hey, I want to spend things. I can be reckless. I spent my kid's college fund. I did all these other things. That's not going to create inflation. It's going to create a depression because I did all this unless I have a source for the money. Okay. But that confusion about inflation is also partly purposeful. It takes the uh, focus off of the guilty party. You see, if, if people understood that these are effects that happen as a result of the prior creation of the, uh, of the inflation, the expansion of the supply of money and credit, um, then, well, you know, don't, don't blame me. I didn't do this because, you know, right now, we talk about inflation and they're trying to blame Russia. They're saying, well, inflation's bad because oil prices are high. No, no, none of that's true. But that muddies the waters. I got gotcha. you. And, then, and then, then people are more pliable and more accepting of more regulation and intervention in order to stop what they see have been told is inflation. Uh, he just raised his price. You can't do that. And then we start coming in with all of the government edicts to control inflation. But the Fed's still printing money. Right. And the government's still spending whatever they can get their hands on. So right. again, it's not the spending habits. It's not individual greed or anything else. The inflation exists because the Fed created the money and continues to create it. You know, I think you brought up, I think you answered a question I always had, which was, why didn't the founders put in the Constitution um, a, a provision that said, hey, you can never spend more money than what you bring in? And I think it was because perhaps they didn't ever foresee a central bank. Would that is that a fair assessment? Um, Probably not. I, you know, as much as I've read in history, that's one area that I have, have to go back and research some things again. Okay. But here, here's what I would say, and I think it's reasonable. Their intention was that gold and silver was money. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's why when we talk about constitutionality and it isn't so much whether there's a central bank or a national bank, it has to do with that issue. If, if, a, 
if there were a time when there was more than one national bank or one uh, in existence at the same time, or there was a national bank and a couple other regional banks or whatever, it still comes down to the money and the confidence and credibility there. If as long as I know that I have a certain value here that's stated and that I can convert it and actually get what I believe and expect, then those aren't issues. The issues come into play when somebody tells me this is worth X and it isn't. And when I go to use it, I find out, oh, I, you mean you can't, you can't give me an ounce of gold? I can't have $5 in gold for this $5 bill or the 20. And I used to watch these things in the 60s and I'd say, hey, this says pay to the bearer on demand. And another one says, you know, pay to the bearer on demand $5 in gold or whatever. And, and, then, the, and then the next time it was pay to the bearer on demand $5. <laughs> I, I can turn in my $5 and get $5 back, but doesn't mean anything, it's still a piece of paper. Right. So the issue is what's the basis of the money supply? The system itself, the reason that the, the central banks exist again is because they can create money and they create the money for the purpose of lending it and collecting interest. Again, that's where you know you start to eventually erode the confidence because there isn't anything because you still had a fixed ratio of gold and silver to the dollar until the mid 30s when people started saying i don't trust the government or the money or whatever so the government says wait a second if people start doing gold that's going to kill us how are we going to navigate this depression um, and then the silver history of price supports, um, price depression. I mean, for several hundred years, the, the manipulation was there and finally reached a point where the government simply said, because of the amount of inflation and the cheapening of the existing dollars over time, it's like, we can't maintain this. And then you had all the foreign governments in the early 70s who wanted to turn their dollars back for the gold that they were told they could have at $20 an ounce, then $35 an ounce, then 42. And they just kept getting haircuts throughout that first half century. Well, sooner or later you say, I don't trust you and I don't believe you. So, um, you know, they have managed us rather than manage the stage of the cycle, they have managed us to a point where the dollar is now worth one penny compared to a dollar a century ago. That's a crazy stat. Um, I have another question. So the Fed lends money to the government and then they charge interest on it. Right. And then we continue to borrow money without really ever paying it back in full. If I was to use that same scenario in my household budget, at some point, the interest payments are going to be larger. Just the interest payments, if, if, right. if I'm thinking about this correctly, will be larger than what I actually produce. True or false? We are already at a point 
where the ratio of debt to productivity is greater than 100%. The total debt is over 100%. It means in very simple terms that it takes 103,000 or 100 and some silly um, fractional amount over 100 to pay for $100,000 worth of productivity. Oh. You, you know, see, we're, we're already functioning that way. We're already functioning. We are not, it, it makes sense that if, if I can borrow money at 8%, okay, and I can earn 15 or 20, okay, I'll do that. You know, I, I mean, there's risk involved and everything else. Or that my total debt doesn't exceed productivity. Well, that's where we are. We've gotten to the point now where everything's funded by credit. And this is the dependency. If you take away the credit, the economy collapses. But the other choice is that you don't take it away and we either have hyperinflation or a credit collapse anyway because it always ends in depression. Whether we have hyperinflation or deflation, we will still end up with a, another depression and it'll be a lot worse than the last one. So I'm gonna, I can't remember who I heard it from, but it was an economist who said, I should have looked this up before we got on here, but it said, uh, the laws of economy are a lot like the laws of physics. You can figure out a way through propulsion to, um, to you know stave those off for a little while but at some point the laws of physics are going to be obeyed the laws of economy are the same way and that kind of sounds what you were saying at some point there's going to be a reckoning that happens so to speak correct correct i, I believe that very much so let me ask you this what would cause what would be the catalyst to that reckoning right? What, what kind of e world events or whatever would, would be the trigger to start that? What kind of events? Does that, is that a fair question? It's a fair question. The thing is, anything, almost anything could be the trigger or the catalyst to set that in motion. And here's why. When we talked about um, the uh, uh, inflation that's created by the Fed, in the banks. There's an, another larger, that's where all the attention goes. But the bigger risk is the fact that the cheap credit is what allows Wall Street to continue to produce product inventory of dubious quality. And I say that meaning if you can dream up a scenario in your mind, you can find, probably find a security <laughs> that Wall Street has out there that will that you can bet on to see that happen. Meaning, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about interest rates up for the US dollar and down for the Japanese yen, or whether we're talking about uh, federal 
agency rates versus others. You know, there's spreads, there's, there's options, there's uh, future options on futures. There, there are so many esoteric investments out there that are based on credit. And you take one basic product, like a, like a bond. Do you remember, you know, what we used to call zero coupons and we still, they're still out there. You use, they would strip the interest and this is just a, you know, sounds like, how do you do that? But they did. And they would say, here's a treasury bond it, for the next 30 years is going to pay 8% interest or whatever the rate was, 4%. You say, all right, I don't need the income. So I'm going to buy that treasury bond at a discount. And, the, and then I'll have a capital increase over time and it'll mature gradually to the point. So I might buy that at a, a significantly reduced rate and I just won't collect the income. Then they sell the interest income to somebody else. But the problem is people are, uh, the uh, products, a lot of the products are based on things that fluctuate volatile or very volatile based on changes in interest rates and they do this because they're looking for ways to generate income because the traditional ways won't work anymore because the interest rates are too low. So they've got to be able to attract it. So how are you going to attract people to buy a product telling them, hey, look, you're going to earn a half percent over the next two years on this. What? I don't <laughs> want that. What do right. I want that for? Um, so you have this entire level of activity, we'll call it investment activity, that nobody sees anything on, understands, can explain. Even the people, the people that market these, they don't understand them. They have somebody put this together, how they get it approved, I don't know. But so, and, it, and it's all because it's very convoluted and they're all based on premises that if anything happens to alter those premises or the direction that people expect the interest rates or uh, currency, foreign currency exchange rates and that sort of thing, if it alters even the slightest fraction, it can cause horrendous losses. Now, what's happened recently, there's some big bets that have gone south real fast with the latest efforts by the Fed to push rates up. Um, so we, we're, it's like a razor thin uh, edge that's keeping, you know, you tilt it just a little bit this way. Those kind of things can trigger and somebody says, hey, a big investor who bet big and suddenly finds he's a couple billion dollars in the hole. And now, how do how do I do that? What do and maybe he's a maybe he's a manager of a hedge fund. Maybe he's a big shareholder. And so, I mean, the implications go on and on. But but that's not the half of it. And we haven't even gotten into this. And I don't know whether we can tonight because it's something that gets um, you know it's very detailed. But I'm game if you are. You have all country, the time you want. All right. Our country operates on what is called, a, uh, our banking system operates on what is called fractional reserve basis. You take 
100,000 that you just got and you go to your bank and you put it in. Now, I mentioned earlier, and this is what happens. Every bank at the end of each day has to make sure that their bank, their accounts in terms of money they've loaned out, assets and liabilities come into a certain balance. They're allowed to loan out as much as 90% of that 100,000 that you just put in. Wow. To the extent that they are already in balance. So let's just say that all of the debits and credits that day, the liabilities and everything else, they total it up and they look at it and say, okay, we're in balance and, uh, uh, and we have enough of a surplus that they can loan out $90,000 because that's the Reg T requirement. And I'm, and I'm talking about it in pretty simple terms because I want people to understand what's really happening because it's a combination of everything that's all the transactions going through the bank withdrawals and everything else. And it's on a system-wide basis. So, but each individual bank can loan out 90% of whatever they take in. And then they have to make sure that they're in balance that way, that they meet that. So here's an extra amount. They loan $90,000 out. Now your money is still on deposit, even though they've loaned that 90,000. If you go in there, you can still get your $100,000, okay? Okay. Put it in your bank. They've loaned it to somebody else. Somebody else gets, let's say it's a small businessman. He gets his money. He's got a, a car dealership. He's got this 90,000 he needs. He deposits in his bank. Or he could deposit it right back in that bank. Just depend, it doesn't matter. Guess what? The bank says, hey, we've got $90,000 here. We can loan out 10% of that. So they do. And this goes on and on. And the multiple, some people have done some studies, but it ends up being that from a certain point of origin, it works out to be an eightfold increase based on that original amount. That's inflation. That money was created by the bank to lend and collect interest. That's the daily activity of the banking system. And that alone could cause a collapse in our system. Now you want to talk about bank runs and all that? Forget the Federal Reserve. See, that's part of the Federal Reserve. They're there to provide an environment and a structure for the member banks. They can keep an eye on them. You hear all the concern about capital requirements. That's part of that. That creates an environment. Now these banks can do what they do best, lend money and collect interest. They're not really lending your money. Gotcha. They're basing that loan on the money you've deposited, but you have a demand on that. And it's every bit as great as the 90,000 that that person took and put in his bank. And, and so, you know, they can say, well, it's offset. The, the liability is offset. Well, that's how, that's what happens when too many people want their money. 
for whatever reason, and they go to the bank and say, hey, where's my money? I want my money. Well, it's not your money that they loaned out. They just loaned out too much. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, they should, yeah. And you can look at it this way. If you give your friend money to keep for you safe, you trust them and they do this and they do some things for it and maybe they're not irresponsible with it, but they lend it and now it's in different places, but you decide you need that money. Well, you go to them and say, well, you and everybody else that leads it right now, we just don't have it because they have, see, all right? Now, um, there's detail with this that's important to understand it. And, and there's an article on my site called the, uh, I think the, the elephant in the room, fractional reserve banking. So anybody wants to get a clearer picture of how banks operate, this means your bank, my bank, and this is the way it's been. And this to me is a bigger risk. I, it's certainly as much of a concern as these other things, you know, the wow. big picture that we've been talking about. It, it, it does seem like it's, it's constantly, I have to admit, it seems somewhat impressive that we've been able to operate like that for so long. Right. I mean, absolutely. In I, fact, I, I don't know how it's tipped over. after you explaining that to me. I don't know how it's tipped over thus far. Right. I, I suppose I suppose that's maybe a big argument for God is that, hey, we haven't completely gone bankrupt yet because yeah. I, I, I don't know how it's tipped over. Um, yeah, it's um, and this this is the thing. This is, these are the things that people most people aren't aware of. And if they are, they say, well, it's worked, you know, long enough, so maybe it's okay. I, you know, I don't stop and think about it every time I enter and exit my bank. But on the other hand, I think when we're looking at problems with the system, we can see that, you know, there's definitely a risk here and it's a big one. And right. it, it, it dovetails, I think, with all these other things. Now you can see, you know, if you go back and look at, uh, read uh, about the history of events in the roaring 20s leading up to the depression, it's a real eye-opener, eye the stock market crash and everything else, because you'll see how uh, act economic activity generated by the Fed's willingness to extend cheap credit you know, before the stock market crash occurred, banks, because they were direct lenders to investors at that time, were lending as much as two thirds of the value of a new securities purchase to ordinary people to invest in stocks. Now, you look at today, we might not be quite that liberal in terms of direct margin loans, but the margin loans still exist. The volatility is greater, the risk is greater, and you also have products that are leveraged. You can buy ETFs, exchange traded funds that have leverage built into them. And their purpose is to create an effect more than one to two times whatever the market 
action is, whether it's an individual stock or a group of stocks or the market itself. So the leverage is all through the system. And again, it's not just Wall Street, but then we've got ordinary economic activity. We have student loans, car loans, real estate. I mean, it goes on and on. Okay. That's, that's a pretty sobering thought. If you're willing, and I understand that, that a lot of this is wildly unpredictable, as you stated before. Do you foresee inflation and economic struggle getting worse from this point forward? Or do you see a rebound? Do you think we're at the bottom of things? What does your gut tell you as a guy who's worked, you know, you've, you've worked in this industry for 50 years. You've advised clients, you know, as, as, a, as a, uh, a financial advisor. What do you see down the road here in the next, let's just say next six months? I, I generally don't make predictions of that kind and especially not over the next six months. But what I will tell you is this, we are closer to economic cataclysm than at any other time in our history. I believe that, that's my personal opinion. Even more so than, than stagflation in the 70s under Carter. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also believe that um, that the possibility is such that we could see things happen overnight anytime or it might take a few more years. And the only reason I say that is because there have been times in the past where I can't figure out how they were able to pull the rabbit out of the hat every single time. I really thought 2020 was like, each time it ha- something happens, I'm like, how, what are they gonna do now? How are they gonna resolve this? We just watched everything drop by 30 to 40% in the space of a couple of weeks two years ago and and I'm like, and then they're gonna shut the economy down? They're gonna people not to produce? Well, we're going into a depression. And I really thought we were. I'm amazed at the resiliency. And that's the thing is we find ourselves no matter what seems to be happening, some way to pull ourselves out of it. I don't know whether we can do that again. I just right. don't. But I don't want to say that that possibility is off the table. I just think that we have to say more realistically that the odds of that are greater than they ever have been. And the significance will be much, much greater. In other words, the effects of anything like that, the ability of anyone to counter that or bring us back to anything normal this thing that's going to be nearly well, I, impossible if you can. Well, I appreciate you saying that because, so I work in the construction industry. I'm a land surveyor. Okay. And I've seen, I saw 2008, right? Hit my profession especially hard, right? If you were an engineer, an architect, land surveyor, uh, a developer, right. 
it just puts you flat on your butt, right? It was just the kind of the way it was. I look back at those times and I'm like, okay, so it seems to be that, right? We seem, you, you, there's almost this feeling of an overheating economy. Now, and, and again, I don't have your expertise at all, so I could be wrong, but I got this feeling of an overheating economy on top of every everything else. And, and, and again, I could be totally wrong because, again, I'm not as smart as you when it comes to this stuff. It just, there's alarm bells in my gut, and I do, do not know why, and that's why I had you, had you on. Um, you said something that kind of spooked me. You said we're closer to economic cataclysm than we've ever been before. Let's just say the worst happens because I want to paint the picture, and then we're going to talk about some ways that, that we can weather this storm. Right. I don't want to end it on a bad note. What does economic cataclysm look like for the average American family? I think that's largely an unknown because I think our whole way of thinking will be forced to change. But even if we just go back and say, what if it was a traditional depression and you have 25% of the workforce unemployed? and it stays at that level. That's milder than the potential we're talking about, but it's significant enough that it would have a much greater impact on society and economic activity than anything we faced in this century or anything we faced since the Great Depression of the 1930s. So, um, so you think, what would happen, how would things be? I mean, you had millionaires who were on street corners selling apples and pencils. You had people jumping out of windows. Um, you had tent cities, bank, bank failures, bread lines, I mean, soup kitchens, but they were on every corner. And say you go to a certain part of town and here's the place you can get something to eat. They were on every block. I mean. It, economic depression is exactly what it was. And that is bad enough without it getting to that point. I think most people, when they're thinking of something bad at this point, think, okay, stocks could drop in half, but then the Fed will step in and I'll just buy a bunch of stuff then and I'll, you know, it'll go back up again. But it would extend much farther than asset prices. And I, I think that I think we'd see defaults on credit that would, uh, they would make our system and structure questionable in terms of what are we doing? I mean, these people that are the day traders to me is, is the perfect example of, of uh, reaching a point where uh, we've gone too far. It's too easy. It's too easy. Nobody thinks fundamentally anymore. Right. All I think about is what's the next big thing, and and you know if I can if I can bet on it, I am. So they're they're extremely price conscious. They don't buy stocks because it's a good investment. They buy them because they think the price is going to go up, or they've seen the price go up. So, um, but but I like every once in a while to just throw out a question and I say like, you know, what if there is no stock market? I mean, 
if people could see what the stock market and activity surrounding it was like after the crash, they'd be utterly shocked. <laughs> it was like, you know, you're standing around on the floor and nothing's happening. Nobody, nothing is happening. Nobody cared, nobody wanted it. You know, price action didn't mean anything. There were no customers. Right. That assumes there was a market. What if there is no market? What happens if things get so bad? And this is where people, you know, there are a lot of people who predict, well, if you want to protect yourself, do this, buy this, own this. What happens if things are so bad that there's no marketplace for you to do this? How do you sell something that's important when nobody has any money to buy it? <laughs> I, I mean, we can say, well, what's the price of it? Or what's a, how valuable is something? And see, I think this is gonna call into question. People are gonna learn really fast what's valuable, what has value and what's just high priced. So you look at stocks in general and you say, uh, are they overpriced? I believe they are. I think all financial assets are overpriced. Doesn't mean they don't have a value. It just means they are all overpriced at this time. Severely overpriced. Where's that value? Where does that come into play? Does it come into play at a reasonable point or an unreasonable point? Because in most cases, we go to the other extreme at some point. And that other extreme says the value conscious investor will be screaming, wondering why the price hasn't responded. And it just sits there. And the thing is that nobody's immune to this because eventually you have a depression, even hyperinflation ends in a depression. And if we go to deflation, gold and silver, They'll go in the tank too. At least you know you have a certain value if the system becomes unworkable. So, you, you know, you can say, okay, what's the value of my gold or silver? What can I buy with it? A lot of that depends on what happens when something like this occurs. Um, but I, I think too many people are too... It's just too easy to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to ignore it. I, I mean, I want to ignore it, so I right. do. You know, they, they, they you say, well, that could happen, but. So fine. And I, I think it'll, and, and then what makes things worse is the government uh, will step in and, and fight it instead of allowing it. You know, when somebody gets sick, in order to really get better and heal themselves, they have to be sick because that's how the body heals. But they don't want to deal with that. So they take some pills uh, and, and they try to cover up the symptoms and then they force themselves to go back to work and say, yep, yep, I can't do that. And so the illness is still there. Maybe it's in hibernation. Maybe they're strong enough and young enough that they can get her, you know, put it off or, or, or get, get through it. But I think more and more people are going to be unable to handle what happens. And then we're going to see, you know, a potential free for all, really.
I mean, that's a possibility that most people just won't consider. I don't want to see that, but you'd have to be, if you look at the history of uh, money and what happens to countries when they ignore fundamental economic law for a hundred years and, and see what happens to their finances and their money and their economic activity. And, and yet we're talking a worldwide basis. Now, I just, I don't see, I think it's so great that we can't even sit here and speculate and imagine how bad yeah. it could be if it happens. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. When I was back in 08, when everything went down, I remember and again, I don't think it did me much good, but I got my hands on everything on economy I could could grab, right? Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, read, you know, articles by uh, Keynes and Hayek. I, I tried to understand as much as I could. And like I said, I don't think it did much good. But it, and my kids were significantly younger then, right? I mean, we're talking, what, it's 2008, now it's 2022, so... Gosh, at least, you know, 15 years or so, 14 years. And I remember thinking if, yeah, I remember there was a moment where the light bulb went on, whether it was a correct idea or a false idea. The, I remember thinking this could end up where, where you're going back to barter apples for something yeah. else, right? Yeah. And, and even, even gold and silver at least for a little while, wouldn't necessarily have any value because it wouldn't have immediate use, if, if that makes any sense. Sure. And, and so to me, that's, that's kind of what it always looked like, but I could be all wrong. So, I, you know, don't, don't take my word for that at all. No, I don't think anybody really knows. I just, I think we have to look at history for some clues and recognize that, um, the potential for something significant is there. And, and, and the other thing is that we've had a system in place where there's always an attempt to suppress or manipulate the natural consequences because nobody wants to go through them. So we even have a population who absolutely, if they were faced with it, would rather have the government intervene to do what they think will help solve or modify a problem because they don't want to deal with it. And it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying all people in general are responsible for this because I don't feel that way. It's just that we're all going to feel it. And uh, there's, there's not much of a way to get around that. You know, it's, it's like be aware. Being psychologically prepared might be as, as important as what we think we can do financially. Right. No, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I remember, I remember, you know, again, because it's the only thing I really have reference to, right? I mean, I was born in 77. Um, I was under my parents' roof through most of the 90s, uh, I guess halfway through the 90s. Um, the, only, the only reference I have is, is 08. But I remember, I remember in 08, all of a sudden I had to get real honest with myself because I could no longer define who I was based simply on what I did for a living. Right. Um, 
and I think we all do that. I think it's all nat. It, it's very natural to to do that. But I remember I had to take a step back and go, so who, who am I? Am I a surveyor or am I my wife's husband? Am mm. I my kids' father? And and I think you you actually hit on a really good point there. That that psychological aspect I think is going to to be as important, maybe even more so if if things do go south in a in a bad way. Now, we've kind of talked about what that would look like potentially, right? My my next question is: let's say I come to you. I have two kids, a wife, um, two kids at home, I should say, that are that are under the age of 16. I do want to be able to help out my adult kids. And I come to you and I say, Kelsey, I want to protect myself as much as I can to weather an economic storm coming, right? What would you recommend me to do? Part of this has to do with how strongly you believe or fear that particular event and its occurrence sooner rather than later. It is, it's a combination of several things. Someone comes to me and says, look, I absolutely am convinced we're gonna have a, a crash. It's gonna be a crash we're not gonna recover from. It's gonna affect everything and everybody in a significant way. It's gonna last a long time and there's a lot of unknowns. And I just simply wanna put all my efforts into protecting myself as well as possible against that scenario and event. Okay, then I would advise you a certain way, okay? But to the extent you have family and to the extent you recognize that um, the probability might not be 100% that it's gonna happen in the next 10 or 20 years or maybe your lifetime, and, and so we look at all of those and then we say, okay, based on, and you've got young children and a responsibility there is like, well, you, you know, you got to look and think, say, is that realistic to plan that way, given where you are? I'm not saying it isn't, I'm just saying you've got to look at all that. So this is where the psychology enters in and where the uh, convictions of the person relative to what they're trying to accomplish and all that. Having said all that and recognizing everybody's going to vary on how they do that, I'd probably still lean towards saying you can't bet the farm on one outcome. It just, it's unrealistic. And, and I told people, most people don't make the mistake of betting on the wrong thing they make the mistake of betting on something to the exclusion of other things. So no matter how strongly someone feels about that, I would be hard pressed to say, okay, well, you know, let's put it all here and do this. You know, let's, let's function that way. And so I, I think, you know, generally speaking, I'd say what's real is giving our, uh, given our environment, how can you accomplish some of that or most of it and still recognize your other responsibilities and the possibility that maybe it won't all just come down at once 
right away. So I would say, well, all right. And I would never have said this 20 or 25 years ago, but I would say, if you've got the assets and the, the primarily the money and you're comfortable with where you live and pay off your mortgage and own your house outright, I would always tell people, carry as big a mortgage as possible, do something else with the money. That still might be reasonable depending on an individual situation and what they're trying to accomplish. But I would be thinking like, well, what am I gonna do with it? Because you have to look at what you're gonna do with it. And given the scenario we're talking about, where is value? Is there value in your house or your home? Yeah, I'd say their value it provides you a place to stay. If you paid off the mortgage, you generate income. You don't have to make a mortgage payment, so you've generated income by paying off the mortgage. So I would consider that versus telling someone to maintain a mortgage, unless they were in a position where they said, no, I'm just gonna get up my helicopter and I'm gonna to go to my retreat on my private island. <laughs> so, <laughs> You don't, you don't need to, you don't need to do that. So, but if I'm looking at how, I want to make sure that my money is in value, not just something that's high priced. So I'm gonna get actual value out of my house, which says, here's a place I can put some money since I'm not sure what to do with it otherwise. So you've got that. I would pay off my car and my debts. Never would have told people that, never. Now to say, well, I'm looking at myself personally and saying, pay off the car, live in a house that you don't have a mortgage payment that nobody's going to come and say, um, throwing you out, or I'm taking this house, or whatever. I, I don't want anything to get in the way there. So you want privacy and seclusion and confidence that this is your place. Pay it off, pay off the car. There's value to those things. I would want some cash reserves, just cash on hand somewhere that I can get my hands on it. I don't have to, I just need to know that there isn't somebody that's gonna be in the way of that in terms of doing it. And I don't know what the system, you know, what, what, what the actual outcome holds. So I, I can't say I wouldn't want those on hand. So I want some cash reserves. I want some, a few silver coins. And then for larger portions of wealth, I want to own physical gold, not gold mining shares and not ETFs and any of that. I would want physical gold and I want to make sure that I'm in control of it that I can be comfortable that I'm in control over it. I'm not saying how that would work because I don't do individual stuff. I just, I look at it on a broad base. I can give some suggestions, you know, and stuff like that. But, but primarily the point is owning the physical commodity and knowing that you're in control of it. So you have to trust your sources and stuff like that at that point. Um, beyond that, I would like, okay, do you want to say like out of your total net worth, somebody feels comfortable putting 20% into traditional investments, 10%, nothing. 
and on that basis carve out a portion and say okay i want i want something that i can rely on more so than most things and you know as much as i say it, it and it's so ironic but i would have to say short-term treasury securities they're not going to default I, I mean if it ever gets to the point that they do everything else is gone right. so but I don't want to do long term because then I have the risk of volatility with the market value as interest rates change. But the reliability of the income stream and, and default are not an issue. So short term treasuries, you know, have those. Um, and, you know, beyond that, again, I, I would say that that depends on individuals circumstances. Okay. So let's talk about gold here for a minute. I know a lot of guys will buy gold on paper, right? They'll just, sure. they'll just buy it in paper and say, look, I, I can always go down and redeem this. That's not necessarily the case, right? Correct. Um, you know, the, the conditions, if you think about it, what are the conditions that might trigger someone to want to go get it? They're usually not good conditions. <laughs> and those are the time when the vulnerability is the greatest. Um, so I realize it's convenient, but that's where I think it comes into play. Uh, it's easy to market and sell products that are tied to gold, but aren't really gold. <laughs> so, and that's Wall Street's answer. Oh, you want gold? We'll give you gold. Um, so I and, and and then what are they buying it for? Are they buying it because they want to own some physical gold or some gold related items, or are they speculating about the price? That would determine if if you're just speculating on the price, short or long term. And, and not necessarily long term, but sh shorter term, then you know a paper product is probably okay if you understand what you're doing and do that. If you want to know that you own gold for gold's sake, then you need to think about what you're buying and your access to it. Okay, so if I was to put that in a different way, maybe if you're looking at trading gold right the paper stuff is fine but if you're buying gold as like an insurance policy you want the physical stuff you want the physical stuff yeah because and, and it's for exactly the reasons we're talking about uh, you don't want to be dependent upon a scenario of events that could get in the way of you being able to accomplish your goal because you didn't get the physical thing. If you're, if you're looking at trading and speculation, you think, okay, a portion of this, I'm betting that gold's gonna go up or go down X amount. And this, this scenario is a, enough of a possibility and I want to protect against that and I'm willing to put this here with the understanding when you're doing something like that that's money that you don't feel you have to have 
that's how I approach when people get to the more risky portions of their investment portfolio. Is this money you really need? No, it's just an element of the diversification. Could be a big payoff, but if I lose it all, it doesn't affect everything if I take in these other steps. Gotcha. Okay. So I know your website is called kelseysgold.com, right? Kelsey's Gold Facts is the name of the website. The URL is kelseywilliamsgold.com. And, and what kind of stuff can folks find on there in, about gold? Um, I write it from an educational standpoint. So when people go there, they can read something that's going to help explain an issue. And it's fundamentally based. I've included some technical things, but the technical is always to support or in corroboration with fundamental arguments. I'm not a trader or a speculator. I don't like to predict the price. I like people to understand why the price moves. And most people who are involved in the markets today, I don't think they have a clue. I do not think they really understand what is happening with gold, no matter how much people talk about the economy and inflation and all these other things. So I try to write so that they get a little bit better understanding of that. So when they do something, they're not gonna be surprised and disappointed because their assumption was incorrect. Okay. So I write about gold, I write, I've written about silver, uh, uh, I write about inflation, the Federal Reserve. I've written a couple articles on cryptocurrencies, a couple on real estate. I've written about interest rates, modern monetary theory. Um, you know, there's a search bar and it has categories and people can just go to it and say, I want to read, what did you say about crypto? And they can click on that and read them. So that's there. There's a there's probably, well, as well over 200 articles on different subjects there. That's pretty prolific. And that's in addition to your book, Hail the Fed, right? Yeah, actually, uh, all Hail the Fed. And then the other book, uh, the first one I wrote, which is three months before that, was Inflation, What It Is, What It Isn't, and Who's Responsible For It. And there, uh, and uh, both of them I did in uh, 2018. And what I wrote at the time, the material, they're, they're really, they're booklets, they're ebooks and paperback. They're not lengthy, but the, the material is from articles I had written up to that time. And then I went in, you know, reworked it, get it in a book format and stuff. So I've got four years of articles since then. So there's a, quite a bit that I could write if I wanted to revise or do another book or something, but the basics are the same. They're right there. They explain a lot of the things we've talked about very clearly. That's awesome. Including, including the fractional reserve banking. That's awesome. So I just want to say right now that, that as you and I talked, you, you invited me on, on to go look at your website and I read through it. And the nice thing about it was that it was so easy to understand. Right. And look, if I can understand it, anybody can understand it. So I, I'm like, if I, this, this is the perfect site.
for, for a guy like me just trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Is Kelsey, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on tonight that we didn't get a chance to do? I don't, I don't feel so. I know there's subjects that in the back of our heads will probably say, hey, you know what, we need to talk more about this on a, at another time or something like that. I feel like we've made, done a good overview here. And it's I certainly a good introduction for people because what we have talked about should raise questions in people's minds. And if it does, that means they're gonna go do some research. And by all means, they should read other things, but they need to think beyond the, what seems logical and presumptive. And that's where I try to bring out on the, in the articles that I write so that people are seeing a different picture that it's not so easy to just assume that if this happens and the Fed does this and so-and-so, that we'll see such and such. I don't think you can say that because the one thing we haven't talked about is we haven't really gotten into gold and how it reflects the effects of inflation and all that. And it is a long, takes a while. So, and that's something for the future, but that's the kind of stuff that's on the website. Perfect. Well, that brings me to, to another point. As we continue to go through this with the economy, would you be willing to come back on and, and have more of these conversations with me? Absolutely. I'd love to. Perfect. We'll uh, stick around and uh, you and I will, will maybe look at setting something up for down the road a little ways. Glad to. All right. Sure. Appreciate being on here. Kelsey, you're the man. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody.